All right, good morning. Oh, come on. Good morning. How's everyone doing today? Good, good. Welcome to those of you who are online. Um, thank you, Kim, for that beautiful song to take us through communion. All right, uh, before we begin, I just want to uh, just invite the Lord to fill this place, uh, fill us with it fill this place with his presence and that his Holy Spirit would be the one doing the, doing the work here. Heavenly Father, just thank you for today. I thank you for your word and uh, just the opportunity to be able to share it, to um, just walk through it um, in a, freely. I uh, thank you for that opportunity that we have to do that here. I thank you for everyone that's here uh, with us in person And also, those who are online, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just fill me with yourself and empty me of me, um, that your word would be preached and that what you want to have said would be what is said, and that um, those listening would hear what it is that you have to say to them individually. Again, I just thank you for this opportunity, and uh, just be with us this morning. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Right. So today marks, can we get the house lights on or are they already on? I feel like the spotlight is on me, but that's okay. It is on me. Um, So today marks the last week in our series of studying the Apostles' Creed. Um, As we've learned over the last several weeks, the Apostles' Creed um, is not scripture. It's it's not scripture, but we have been using it as a launching point into scripture, into various passages. The Apostles' Creed is important for us to learn and understand because it does an excellent job of summarizing the core tenets and really the foundation of our faith as believers, as Christians. It provides the truth that is the belief in Christ. It's the truth. It's, it's reality. As Greg has mentioned before, Christians can believe more than what's in the creed. Uh, they can believe more than what is in the creed, but they cannot believe anything less. They cannot believe anything less than what is stated in the creed. And, and quite honestly, this truth is worth dying for. It's worth dying for. As has been our routine prior to each message during this series, I want us to begin by reciting the creed. This will be our last time, if you think about it, this will be our last time as a church reciting this creed together. This is not something we typically do uh, every Sunday. We've been doing that these last several weeks uh, as we prepare to dive into the creed and to learn from it. But uh, this will be really our, probably our last time reciting it. So just, I would encourage you just to recite it with me. Uh, even aloud this morning, and I'll, I'll, I'll begin by reading it here. It'll be on the, on the screen behind me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Alright, so before we dive further into the message uh, this morning, I'd like to begin by asking a question. Now, this requires you to engage with me. We're actually going to be interactive, at least for the people that are here online, or here in person, here online. Wow, I'm really doing great so far. Online, I think you can, uh, you can hop on to the uh, live.darbycreek um, uh, platform, and you can probably type in there and, and engage with others that are online um, there. Type your responses. So I'd like to ask you a question, and I need you to give me an answer. If there was anywhere in the world, anywhere at all, that where you could go for an extended vacation, and I'm talking like two, three, maybe even four weeks. Okay, this is a long vacation. If there's anywhere in the world that you would like to go, maybe a place that you've never been before, a place that's exciting to you, where would you go? Shattered out. What's that, Colleen? Ireland? Okay, awesome. Ireland's a good one. Any, anyone else? Scotland, okay. Israel, okay. The holy nation, the holy place, okay. For, what's that? Poland, okay, awesome. These are places that you probably haven't been before. Hopefully they're places you haven't been before because you're using, that as the, uh, you're using this as the, the, where you would like to go on vacation. Now let me ask you this. To go to these places, what would you need to do to prepare? What are some things that you would need to do? Have, lost, have lots of money. Cam mentioned in the first service, you need to go rob a bank. It's like, okay, well, maybe let's just save some money to go into the bank. I mean, let's try that. That's not what today's message is on. So, passport, okay, so you need to get all of the proper things in place. You need to have, uh, what is it, the, you need to have all your ducks in a row, right? Okay, make sure you have the appropriate clothes. You need to prepare and check the weather. Um, you might look into the things that are going to be there, right, you, to, to plan out what you're going to do. Um, you might need to find a place to stay. You need to purchase a ticket, right, to get there. You're probably, whether it's going to, now you might be driving, I don't know. It, it might be somewhere in the country, in the U.S., and you could drive there, but you would need to, have that car prepared, and all the things. You would need to prepare. Now, what would you feel like as you get closer to that time of going there? What are your emotions going to be like? Excited. Okay, that's a pretty good word. Yeah, excited, right? You're, you're, uh, you, if you're working or you're going to school, you're going to be thinking about that. What's coming? You know that you can get through this today. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to, I'm going to pound through this uh, task that I've got to get done today. I've got to listen to this professor who I really don't like, but I'm going to get through it. To, because I know what's coming. I'm so excited about what's coming. Now let me ask you this. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, do you think about heaven and the new earth in the same way. What do you believe about the life everlasting? 
how might that impact the way you go about living your life? If it's something that, I'm getting a lot of silence in here. If it's something that you might be nervous about or unsure of, it means we need, it might mean that you don't know enough about that place. The Bible does give us insight into the new earth, the life everlasting, heaven, even the bodies we're going to have, what they might be like, what things might feel like. The Bible does give us insight to that. And I don't know if we spent enough time digging into that. And today, that's going to be their focus of the message. This week, we're going to key in on the last phrase in the creed. And that is, well, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. My goals for this morning as we go through this message and as we dive into a, a passage, actually one chapter in Scripture, as we go through this, my goals for this morning, or, or things that I hope you take away from what's said here today, are fourfold. Okay, I've got four goals here. The first one is to show you that there will indeed be a real physical resurrection of the dead. There will be a real physical resurrection of the dead. Goal number two, to show you why there must be a resurrection. Why it has to happen. Number three, to clarify what this will look like for all believers in that moment. What will it look like? What will it feel like? What will it be like? And then four, to impact or change the way you might be living your life as a believer today. Maybe even to potentially change your perspective. Now, hopefully the creed, the entirety of the creed has been doing that for you and that the gospel has already changed your life and provided the impact. But what I'm going to show you today is you can't have the creed without this last phrase. You cannot have the creed without this last phrase of the creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I'm going to show you what I mean by that. At the same time, you can't have the last phrase without the creed. So you can't have one without the other. They both are necessary. So the good news is that I'm not going to be the one that's doing the convincing for you today. I'm not going to have to convince you. I'm going to let Paul take care of that, who was inspired by God in a letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'd like to encourage you to open your Bibles to that passage of Scripture right now. As we're getting there, uh, I just want to mention some things that were going on in Corinth. Um, there's a lot. <laughs> but uh, I'm just so thankful that, this is going to sound strange, but just, Hear me out. I'm so thankful that the church in Corinth was in error. I'm so thankful that they were wrong. Because if they weren't wrong, we might not have what we're about to read today. We might not know the things in this life 
that are revealed to us today in this passage of Scripture. I'm so thankful that the Corinthians were in error. Paul took the opportunity to teach them and to reveal to them the truth of the resurrection. Okay, so let's dive into this. The resurrection. So, first of all, the church in Corinth was dealing with uh, several things. There was a lot of sin that they were dealing with. Um, and, and one of those areas was they, they, they were... Actually, a lot of the reason why they were sinning and, and, and a lot of the pride that they had stemmed from this belief that they were extremely spiritual people. They were speaking in tongues, and because of those speaking in tongues, it meant that they were more spiritual than anyone else, and that uh, it kind of elevated them above other people. That was their, that was their mindset. They, they had this idea that they were, they were superior. Right? We talked about arrogance, I think, at one point, several uh, back in December. Uh, they, they had this thought about them, that they were spiritual people, super spiritual people. And so spiritual, in fact, that they had already moved into the life of the spirit or the life of the spiritual. All they needed to do now was just kind of remove them, shake off the body that they had on them, the actual flesh, and just move into this spiritual existence. They were already there. They just needed, the last thing they needed to do was just take off the flesh. And what Paul is showing here is, okay, you kind of got it, but not exactly. There's more to that story, and there's more that he's going to dig into. And the other thing that they had trouble with was, and, and this kind of stems from what I was talking about earlier here, with this sloughing of, uh, shoving off of the body and, and not needing it anymore. They also had this belief that there was going to be no resurrection of the dead. They believed that Jesus resurrected from the dead, that he raised from the dead, but they didn't believe that there was going to be a resurrection of the dead later on. They thought that they had already achieved that. They had already gotten there. They were living in that, that spirit life. So Paul's going to explain to them that you can't have the resurrection of Christ without the resurrection of the dead. And you can't have the resurrection of the dead without the resurrection of Christ. So let me start here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read to you how Paul starts this chapter here to the church in Corinth. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, meaning Peter, and then to the twelve, meaning the twelve disciples. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, meaning Paul. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that, was within, that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So what he's, 
He's just reiterating to them and revealing to them something they already know, something they've already bought into, and that's this belief that Jesus rose from the dead. He was resurrected. In fact, he actually recites some sort of a creed in these verses here, in verses 3 through the end of 4 here. And probably it could have been, there could have been part of a creed here, 5 through 6, but he might, that might be something he added. But really, when you look at those verses 3 and 4, it kind of looks very similar to the Apostles' Creed that we've recited earlier today. There was some sort of a creed that they had all bought into, that they believed. And it was about this resurrection of Christ, that he was, that he was died, he died for our sins, and then he was buried and raised on the third day. That was something that they had bought into. The problem is, is that they, they hadn't bought into the further resurrection of the body, the resurrection of the dead, the entire resurrection of the dead. And I'm going to mention that here in a minute. But let me, let me just really settle down in for you what they believed, the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus went through, as a, as a person, as a man, Right? He's a man. We know Jesus as a man. God became flesh. He went through the most excruciating death, the most excruciating pain that the Romans could muster, that they could come up with, an execution so horrific called the crucifixion, called a crucifixion. We put the instrument of that crucifixion in our church as a reminder of what Christ did. But just think about this as a man, as a, his body. Okay, Even before he went to the cross, they beat him. His back was torn open by the lashes that were given to him. So much so that you could probably see his rib cage. His body had been torn. They put a crown of thorns on his head. And they didn't just sit it there. They shoved it onto his head. And it pierced his skin on his head with blood coming down on his face. And then they sat the cross down placed him on it with that torn back on the cross, stretched his hands out, pierced his hands, pierced his feet, attached him to this instrument of death, the cross, and then raised him up. And the thud of the cross going into the ground probably dislocated his shoulders. Because the point, the way that people died on the cross was through um, suffocation. It, was, it had fixed, I don't know all the medical uh, terms for it, but they, it had basically pulled his arms to the point where he couldn't breathe anymore. In order for people to breathe on the cross, you had to step on the nail that your feet were attached to the cross with to raise up to try to breathe, to bring your arms up so you could actually breathe. His body was so broken. And then when he died, they pierced his side and blood and water flowed. 
And then they buried him. Now I tell you all that to say this. He rose on the third day. That body that had been beaten and torn and broken walked. He walked around. He ate. He's probably wearing clothes. He ate with his with his disciples. He ate with his friends. He ate meals. He spoke to them. He talked to them. He resurrected from the dead. His body was transformed. They recognized him. He was there among them. Just like as he had been before the crucifixion. And the Corinthians believed that. That that was possible. And that God did it. But what they didn't believe is that it could happen to them. This resurrection of the dead. And what I'm going to get into now is this the certainty of the resurrection and then the implications if there is no resurrection. Okay? So let's talk about what does it mean if there is no resurrection of the dead, if the, if the Corinthians were right. If there's no resurrection of the dead, what does this mean? I'm going to let Paul explain that for us and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. Verses 12 through 19. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So let's unpack that a little bit. What are the implications that Paul is revealing to us there? The implications of if there isn't a resurrection. The first and the most obvious is that if there's no resurrection of the body, then that means that Christ wasn't raised. Because Christ was a man. If it's not possible for a body to be resurrected, then Christ didn't raise from the dead. That's the logic that Paul is explaining here. Second, our, preach, our preaching is in vain. Our teaching, our sharing of the gospel, our ministry work, our labor, it's in vain. It's useless. It's meaningless. If there's no resurrection of the dead. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, then our work is meaningless. It's in vain. Worse yet, we're lying about God. Because we preach that God is the one that raised Christ from the dead. By doing so, so let's step back this for a minute. By God raising Christ from the dead, it revealed that Jesus is the one who saved us all from our sins. It revealed to us that Jesus is God. That was the point. It was glorifying Jesus. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, and, there's, and Christ didn't raise from the dead, then we, make, then we are lying about what God did. We're lying about God. We misrepresent him. 
Furthermore, our faith is meaningless, and it's in vain. We are still in our sins. If Christ didn't raise from the dead and he wasn't glorified, then it wasn't, it, he wasn't God. He died. He's, he's still dead. And our, we, our sins are not forgiven. We are still living in our sins. That's the implication if there's no resurrection. We're still living in our sins with no hope whatsoever. And then those who have died in Christ as believers in Christ have also perished forever. They're gone. And finally, we are of all people most to be pitied because we're wasting our time. If, if the resurrection is not real, if there's no resurrection. That's the point that Paul is making here. Okay, so those are the implications. Now, good news is that we know that's not true. <laughs> we know all of that is not true. But that's the logic that we're missing when we think that there's not going to be a resurrection of the dead. Now let me further explain why it's reasonable to believe there is going to be a resurrection of the dead. We know that Christ has been raised from the dead. We talked about that earlier, and even the Corinthians knew that. Now Paul is just making the connection here that we know Christ has been raised, so we know that there is going to be a resurrection. And that not only that there is going to be a resurrection, but that there must be one in order for God to reign all in all, over all. Let me explain. Starting with verse 20, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, so what Paul's doing here is referring back to creation, where Adam was created as a man, the first man, Adam was created, and what did he do? He sinned. His sin brought in this poison that corrupted the creation that God had made. And sin then filled the world, and by sin came death. So because of Adam, ushering in that sin brought in death and spread it to all of humanity. That's the point. So Adam is the, um, uh, he's, he's the, uh, the first fruit of all man, and so therefore what he did, he was a represent, representative for all of mankind. And then came Christ, who as we're later going to find out is the heavenly man. Right, And he, by his resurrection, started the beginning of the end. By his resurrection set in motion the things that need to happen before the end of the end. And so, he is the first fruit of the resurrection. What it looks like to be raised from the dead. He is our example. And for those who come to believe in him, to have faith in him and trust in him, we will experience that same resurrection. We have been placed out of Adam and into Christ as our representative. That's what Paul is saying here. Okay, so verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 
what Paul is saying here is, okay, Christ has already, uh, he's the first one that's, that's accomplished the resurrection, that, and not just accomplished it, but has happened to him, right? He's, been, he's raised from the dead. He's the first one. And then later on at his coming, everyone else who belonged to Christ will raise from the dead. That's what he's saying here in verse 23. Verse 24, and then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, I'm sorry, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That is key. Let me read that again. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his, uh, under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now there's a lot of pronouns there. There's hims, his, uh, uh, he, he. There's a lot going on there, and it's kind of it's difficult to. If you take it at first glance, sometimes it might be difficult to kind of understand that. In order, the context here to to understand what Paul is mentioning here is first of all, we believe, and the creed has stated this: we believe that God is a single God, one God, but He manifests Himself in three distinct persons: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so what's happening here is Jesus is going to come again. He's going to come usher in this resurrection. He's going to put all of his enemies under his feet. All of the powers, all of the authorities, all under his feet, under his subjection. And then when all that's said and done, he takes it and he hands it to God, who really owns it all anyway. And so he basically, that's what he's explaining here, is that Christ will be the one to accomplish it and then give it to God. And therefore, God will be all in all. That's what Paul's describing here. But, and to be quite honest, uh, this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, you could probably spend, I could probably spend three Sundays preaching on this. <laughs> this, this passage, we're just, hitting the, we're just hitting the surface. We're just scratching the surface in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and uh, Greg, if you're listening, I'm not saying that I want to preach three more sermons. I'm just saying that that's to really unpack all of it. That's what you know. It, it would take a long time to do. I'm just we're just scratching the surface here. What I want to focus in on is this last enemy to be destroyed is death. So um, some of you may know uh, a couple of years ago, my grandfather passed away, a man who was very close to me, and his death to me, was unexpected. To God, was completely anticipated, right? He's in control of that. But to me, it was something that I didn't expect, and it really affected me. Okay? But I, I say this, say this. He's, he's dead, but I know that he's alive because he was a believer in Christ. I know that he's alive. And so I have that, I have that um, understanding. But he's still dead. The fact that he's alive... In Christ now, he's still dead. The power of death is still on him, as is with every person who has died. Death still has a grip. And what 
Paul is saying here is that in the end, Jesus is going to undo death. Because if it's not undone, then in the new earth, death will still have a hold. It will still have a grip because people will still be dead. Even though they may be alive, spiritually, they will be dead. So Jesus has got to turn back death, undo it. And that's what Paul's talking here. He's going to destroy death. It's the same thing that happened to him. Jesus resurrected, undid death. The same is going to happen for believers here. Now, if you can't tell, I'm pretty excited about that. Because that's going to happen. He has to undo it because it will still have hold if he doesn't. That's how we can say in Revelation 21 and 22 that in the new heaven and the new earth there will no longer be death. Because it will not have a grip anymore. That is pretty awesome to me. Paul goes on uh, in verses 29 through 34 to further explain, specifically in the, in the context of the Corinthians, um, specific, uh, provide further arguments for uh, the certainty of the resurrection, to provide arguments that are in favor of this certainty of the resurrection. Paul says uh, in verse 29 here, he says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay, now let me just stop there. I'm not going to explain that verse because I have no idea what Paul is talking about here. And there are several scholars who would say the same thing. There's, there's numerous ideas as to what he's talking about there. But the point of it is, whatever the Corinthians were doing, it was in direct contradiction to their belief that there was no resurrection. So he's saying, how can you do this? How can you... How, how can... Uh, what, what, do you, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if there's no resurrection? It doesn't make sense. So what he's saying here is what you're doing, you're even contradicting yourself. So you, you really don't believe what you think you believe. Verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, what, what am I doing sacrificing my time and energy and strength and money? Why would I be doing that if there's no resurrection of the dead? I have no reason to do it. That dying every day, is why do I put myself in harm's way every day? Let us eat, um, if, if, if the dead is not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We might as well just live our lives and enjoy it as much as we can because in the end, there's no end. <laughs> it's the end. There's nothing. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. What he's saying here is this mindset, this idea that there's no resurrection, and that's the bad company. And that bad company ruins good morals. It ruins the whole essence of the gospel. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. 
For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Moving on to verses 35 through 49. This is the fun part of the message. I've had had some fun. I'm preaching to myself here and it's just exciting. Um, But uh, now we get to the fun part, the actual physical nature of this, the resurrection body. Okay, the resurrection body. So Paul... um, in his, uh, I just love how he, he thinks, his, his logic here, uh, he's already, he preemptively knows what the uh, Corinthians are going to ask next. Or maybe it's a question that they've already been asking, and that is this in verse 35. He says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? His response, You foolish person. Ouch! That, that kind of hurts, because I, I, sometimes I'm, I think that. How is that even possible? How, I mean, I know Jesus did it, but Jesus is God, right? I mean, he did it. He was a man. Jesus was just as much of a man as us. You foolish person. The word that he's using there harkens back to Psalm 14.1, where the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Paul's saying here is you don't you're not you don't have enough faith you're not believing that God can do this God is going to do this He's already done it You've seen it with Jesus He's going to do it You foolish person Your belief needs to come in God He goes on to say What you sow does not come to life unless it dies And what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Let me unpack this. Here a little bit. First, starting with this analogy of seeds and bodies. I don't have enough time today to focus on the analogy of the seed, but the idea that Paul is using here is there is continuity. There are elements of the seed that still end up in that element of the plant. That when the seed is planted, it has life in it, but when it is buried, it dies. And then it comes again to life in that plant in a more full nature, the intended way it was supposed to be. Right? So there's continuity there between the seed and this plant. But another area that I want to focus in on is, this, is this, um, this concept of heavenly bodies and earthly bodies and the various kinds of earthly bodies and the various kinds of, of heavenly bodies um, and then the kind of the differences that Paul is laying out here. There's a lot going on in what Paul is explaining. There's a lot of imagery and there's a lot that we can learn from it. And I'm, again, I'm just going to scratch the surface here, but I'm going to do the best I can to help us understand the idea 
of this natural, physical body that we will have when we are resurrected, when we're raised. So humans cannot live in water unless we have the proper equipment, right? Blah, 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 stuff that we've made. But on our own, we were not designed to live in water. But fish, they were designed to live in water. They have gills. They can trans, you know, transform that water. I probably is a better, a better, more scientific term for it. But they, they can change that water and the oxygen within that water into their bloodstream, blah, blah, blah. We can't do that. Right? We would, if we breathe in the water, we would drown and, and die. Um, so we weren't designed for that. Likewise, our imperishable, our bodies must put on that which is imperishable in order to live in the environment of the new earth. Because in that new earth, there will be no decay. Our bodies today aren't meant for that. They, the physical nature of how we are, what we live in right now and the sin that surrounds us can't be in that place of, uh, that's imperishable. Likewise, you have a distinct difference between earthly bodies and heavenly bodies. And I'm talking about stuff that we can actually see right now, right? It is, there is a distinct glory about the sun and the moon and the stars, something that just creates awe in us. It just, it's exciting. And even in this time, they were focused on stargazing and understanding the, difference, the differences of the stars and the heat and the, and the, the power that came from those heavenly bodies. And what Paul is saying here is that our imperishable bodies, once they have gone through the resurrection, the difference will be like that between the, heavenly, or the earthly and the heavenly. Right now, we don't think of these earthly bodies as something that's to be in awe of or, in, or that are glo- there's a glory about them. But we are in awe of those celestial heavenly bodies. Likewise, our heavenly bodies, after the resurrection, that imperishableness, if that's a word, that imperishableness will have that awe and glory about it, such that is vastly different than the earthly bodies today. That's what he's trying to get across here. And even so, I think there's even a further element of this, and we're going to get into it here later on in the difference between um, the natural body and, and Jesus' heavenly body and all of that, um, is there are, uh, you can tell the differences between these different bodies that Paul is talking about here. And so I, I think he's also explaining here that there will be a distinct difference between each person that's in heaven. You will be able to tell who is who. You will have that connection. There will be some continuity to where that will be understood. And you will be able, and there will be distinct differences between between you. Meaning, you'll be, I'll be able to tell that Lex is there. I'll be able to say hey to her and wave and that kind of stuff. Um, we'll be able to recognize um, other people, just like Jesus was recognized when he came, after he was raised. Right. At first, they didn't recognize him because. They were not expecting him to be there. Remember, his body had been completely broken, destroyed. He didn't look like the Jesus that they knew when he, was, when he, when he died. 
He didn't look like the Jesus that was walking among them. They had expected that to be the case. So when he, when he rose, when he came, when he was walking among them, they didn't, they, it was, they, didn't ha- they didn't see it coming. And then they were finally able to realize, oh, this is Jesus. And they knew who he was. The apostles could recognize him. He was recognizable, but yet he was in his resurrected body. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself here. The next part here of this resurrection body is the analogy, the difference between Adam and Christ, the analogy between these two um, individuals. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body, so our flesh, it is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body, a spiritual body. The Corinthians would look at that and go, what? We we don't need the body. No, there is going to be a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That last Adam being Christ became a life-giving spirit. It is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is of heaven, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall we also. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So what Paul's saying here is once you're in Christ, you resemble Christ. We should. Anyway, as his followers, we should be resembling Christ. And once you're placed into that, that dust doesn't have that effect anymore. I mean, it will, will die. But what Jesus did started the process to begin that resurrection later on, coming down, coming down the line. But we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. All right, finally we get to the even more fun part where the, actually this is what Paul does here at the end of this chapter. He brings it all to conclusion. It, it kind of it coalesces, collides. All, everything he's been talking about here collides to this one final point in, these, in this last uh, few verses here. And that's the assurance of the coming triumph. This assurance of triumph. Rather than explaining why certain things must happen, he's already done that, like he uh, did in the last 49 verses, he states what will happen just as a matter of fact. It's going to happen. Let me read for you verses 50 through uh, 54 here. Uh, 53. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the imperishable. Basically, it's culminating everything we talked about already, right? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Okay, so what is that, what is that referring to here? Well, I'm sure in the minds of the Corinthians, they're thinking, okay, I get it. You're now, I think I've bought into the fact that there's going to be a resurrection. But what about the people that are still alive at that point in time? What's going to happen to them? Are they going to have to die in order to be raised? 
And what Paul is saying here is that, no, there's going to be a change in the twinkling of an eye. What's, what's perishable will change to imperishable at that moment, when that last trumpet comes, when Christ comes. But first the dead will be raised, and then we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And then when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is, that is written. And this gets back to the death being undone. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And then in typical Paul fashion, he finishes with some theology here. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. We've talked about it already. That this, The sin that's, that permeates this our society, us, that, that's a poison that has corrupted the creation, has corrupted creation. And because of that sin, it brings forth death. And then the law, the law reveals sin to us. Whether it's in pride, like I keep the law, I'm able to hold on to it. That's sin because you can't possibly hold on to the law and keep the law. And then reveal sin in a way of shame by revealing to us that we cannot keep the law. It reveals sin to us. And so the power of sin is the law and the sting of death is sin. Verse 57 though, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus took care of it all on the cross. He took care of all of that. He saved us from our sin and he raised from the grave defeating sin, the law, and death. And then verse 58, and I love this. This is kind of a closing in how to apply this, what we've learned to our lives. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Believers need not have fear of death. We don't need to be afraid of it. I mean, yes, it's coming. We learn that in, in Daniel. We learn, we learn that, um, well, even throughout all Scripture. Death is coming. But we don't need to be afraid of it because we know, that, we know of what's coming after that. That's why he says, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Your work is not in vain. It's, it's being done because we know it's true. So we should continue Sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel, ministering to others, uh, uh, keep on working, and even persevering to the end. To continue persevering, even in the midst of of uh, chaos. Continue on, continuing on. I think it's amazing how that this phrase here, verse fifty-eight, has a similar ring to it to what we saw in Daniel twelve, and what we also see in Ephesians chapter six. To stand firm and be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. It doesn't mean to just stand still and do nothing. It just means to stand firm. So, we've talked about the resurrection of the body. I haven't yet got to the life everlasting. So we're going to keep going. No, I'm kidding. 
Uh, the resurrection of the body reveals to us the life everlasting. Let me just explain with a few things here. So what we've learned is that this resurrection body is going to be physical. There's going to be, it's going to be real. It's going to be tangible. It may look different. It may, it may feel different, but we'll still have that element of physical reality. The new heaven and the new earth, as described in Revelation 21 and 22, they are physical, material places. Did you get that? They're physical. They're material. They're not spiritual places that aren't physical. There's a physical, material nature to them. God created the world, and when he did, back in Genesis, remember this, when he created the world, he said it was good. He said it was good. But then sin entered in. That was prior to the entrance of sin. His plan is to restore it to its original condition. To undo death and to restore that which he created, which was good. Let me just, and then we'll live with him there. He is going to live with us. I mean, this, this God who already had perfect communion with himself. Remember, we talked about the three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He had perfect communion with himself. He didn't need us. He didn't need to create us. He didn't need to create this world, but he did. It was worth it to him. It was meaningful to him. And he did it. And we are going to live with him in this created new earth that's coming. Let me give you an idea of what this might look like. I mean, we've already talked about, you can read it in Revelation 21 and 22. But I want to step back a little bit, and, and I should have mentioned this earlier, but I'll, I'll mention it now. Um, in Luke 23, verses 39 through 43, you have Jesus on the cross, and you have the, um, the others who were crucified with him along either side. And one of them had expressed faith in Christ. And Jesus looked at him and said, because of your faith, you will be with me today in paradise. In paradise. Did you know that that Greek word, paradise, is a term that is used to refer to a garden, a forest, an orchard, a park, even Eden. It all goes back to the garden. God created it and said it was good. He's going to restore it. He's going to bring it back. He's going to undo death. I don't know about you, but that's pretty awesome to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for the the truth of your word. Uh, And just just taking the opportunity to, um, to correct the Corinthians in their error of believing that there wasn't going to be a resurrection. Even, even though you had already, uh, through your son, there was already, already a resurrection. And they didn't believe that there was going to be one. And yet, you showed us through your servant Paul that in order for the new earth to be what you have told us it's going to be, death must be defeated. And therefore, there must be a resurrection of the dead. 
I thank you for that, Father. I thank you for that truth. I thank you for your word that you've used to reveal yourself to us that we might know you and understand you. Father, I, I thank you so much for your love and the love you showed us on the cross. You paid the, what was due. You paid the penalty that was due for our sins. You took on the wrath of God. And you died for us. We didn't just stop there. You came back to life. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. I just thank you so much as we prepare for this, this coming week and preparing for Good Friday and Easter. Uh, just thinking about these things and reflecting on them and, and just being reminded of your amazing love, your amazing love for us. We thank you, Lord. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.